I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE. Today, NATO nations subject to totalitarian propaganda in their media back genocide in Gaza, and today Sweden implicated in the persecution of WikiLeaks's Julian Assange, as well as being supplier of killing machines to Israel, looks set to join NATO. This as the USA is defeated in its proxy war with Russia through Ukraine, and the dollar loses its place as the currency of choice in global transactions. Charting how Ukraine became the decisive beginning of the end of U.S. empire is Professor Glenn Deason. He's editor at the Russia and Global Affairs Journal, whose new book, The Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order, illuminates the lethal lies and deceit of successive U.S. and U.S. proxy Western European nations. He joins me now from Oslo in Norway. Thank you so much, Professor Deason, for uh, coming on. So I said two events today, uh, which uh, emblem are emblematic of themes, really, in your uh, must-read new book. I mean, it's quite an amazing summary of 500 years of uh, neoliberal history. Hungary's vote on Sweden joining NATO, world court hearings on NATO-armed Israel genocide uh, activities in Gaza and Jerusalem. What did just those two events signify in terms of the uh, panorama that you uh, explain in your new book? Well, those two events would uh, well are very significant. I guess the first would be uh, the collapse of neutrality in Europe. Uh, again, during the Cold War, we had a neutral belt uh, going through the continent to give some uh, uh, strategic distance between the two rivals. And again, this was not uh, as a favor to Moscow. This was seen as being in the national interest. Now we see states abandoning this, and largely without debate and without clear reasoning why a successful impulsive uh, neutrality is replaced uh, with extending a direct front line. And of course, uh, it's uh, uh, that the problems in Gaza has become quite a stain on the West as well, because uh, um, I think uh, around the world, there's a lot of decline in the legitimacy, which is, a, of course, a key feature of uh, world order, the legitimacy effectively to rule and to make up rules and implement those rules. And uh, the the legitimacy of the West is declining, uh, as you know everyone more or less recognizes a genocide, but there's still direct support for it. So it's a quite a, quite a dramatic uh, yeah time we live in. Except that as the world is clearly opposed to Washington uh, EU UK policy as regards Palestine, many of those who support Palestinian rights do not appear to understand Ukraine the way you detail it in. In the new book, I mean, Russia just been victorious in Avdiivka, and uh, today Zelensky is saying today is a day of resistance against Crimea, or uh, or whatever it's uh, called, uh, according to uh, Ukraine. Why do you think they they don't see it? The uh, European Union countries, uh, some elements even in the global south, and understand that Ukraine, as you detail, again and again, is uh, a case really of. Uh, NATO-backed genocide in eastern Ukraine, that Russia was going to uh, defend the people in, in eastern Ukraine, and uh, the fact that uh, Ukraine is kind of an echo of Yugoslavia, which in most uh, NATO countries in Western Europe, they're taught at school how Yugoslavia was a great uh, freedom fight uh, by NATO countries, and not, as you explain in the book, uh, completely illegal under any facet of international law, as was then. Well, to some extent, I, I argue it's also a decline of diplomacy, and this has been one of the curses of unipolarity. You, you, if if you don't think you have any opponents to you, there's never any reasons to negotiate. Also, the whole idea of harmonizing and finding mutual interest 
is abandoned. And as we see now, diplomacy takes on largely this uh, pedagogic pedagogic function in which uh, the West is the teacher and the other is the student. So, and the student isn't made compromise with it, it's to socialize. And if it doesn't allow itself to be socialized, uh, they have to be contained or confronted. So there's a, uh, I guess there's a failure to uh, address the key issues. And I think this is a key problem. I. I I hear you know different Western leaders speak, and I never hear any of them being able to articulate the the Russian position. And even if they were able to articulate it, uh, they would be immediately attacked because once you explain the opponent, you can be accused of legitimizing this. And this is the main problem because there's so many objective realities in terms of how this war began, the development over the past thirty years, what sparked the war, and also how, how the war has been going. Uh, I mean, people been thinking for two years that Ukraine was winning because that's what they're being told. So there's a, there's a, there's a failure has been on many levels and it tends to go back to the issue of uh, the failure of unipolarity. But just in the past few days, the government there in Norway, where you're speaking to be from, the defense minister uh, Bjorn Arild Graham sending surface to air missiles to Zelensky or Prime Minister uh, Jonas Garstor signing bilateral military agreements with Zelensky maybe in the next few weeks, they've announced there in Oslo, of course, home of uh, is it the Nobel Peace Prize that they gave to Kissinger, who appears in your book quite a bit. I mean, just to take Norway as an example, what are they thinking? Well, I think there's uh, overall an absence of strategic thinking uh, across NATO, for that sake. It's... Uh, uh, there, there hasn't been any plans. Uh, we, we don't discuss how this war began, which means uh, we, we can't really discuss how to solve it. And also, uh, the assumption is, uh, we, we well, NATO rejected all compromises. Uh, we don't even have diplomacy. Even the negotiations have become a naughty word. So the only possible outcome, acceptable outcome, is victory. But no one has defined what victory means. Are we going to uh, defeat the world's largest nuclear power, uh, exactly how would this look like? So there's um, there, there, there's a there's, yeah, lack of clarity in terms of uh, what, what the actual goal is. And uh, again, I, I don't think there's any good solutions to this. I think uh, the, the key foundation of this, uh, of this miserable policies and failed policies which have been pursued is that it's the basic assumption that it's just unprovoked. Now, we're not allowed to contest that it was unprovoked, because if we say it was provoked, then you're legitimizing it. But by saying it was unprovoked, it suggests that Russia is simply out shopping for new territories, that this was opportunistic. And if that's the case, of course, you have to send weapons to increase the costs compared to the benefits of taking territory. However, if you recognize this was provoked, that Russia sees this as an existential threat, which is an objective reality, confirmed, again, 30 years from Washington as well, well, then sending all these weapons will merely escalate because Russia can never step down or back off if the only uh, option to, uh, for it in, for victory, the only alternative is for it to completely withdraw and see effectively NATO marching on Ukraine, uh, sorry, in on Crimea as well. It's, uh, it, I think it's, it goes back to this uh, flawed assumption that this was unprovoked. And uh, I think this is where a lot of the mistakes are born. And not only the historic uh, hatred of uh, Russia that has been talked about quite a lot, uh, at least by those who supported Putin's actions. The uh, garden metaphor, I mean, I remember Rudyard Kipling, the uh, claptrap uh, orientalist writer, uh, lauded when I was going to school, 
You explain where this, uh, these words we heard from the EU Foreign Minister, Joseph Borrell, talking about the rest of the world as a jungle and them as a garden, and how they keep reappearing, these kinds of uh, uh, phrases. Victoria Newland's husband, uh, Robert Kagan, talking about the importance of uh, leading the world and, this, again, this dichotomy between garden and jungle. I don't know whether I'm in the jungle here in the UAE because I'm not in uh, uh, one of the metropoles of Western Europe. Well, this actually has, a, as you suggested, a long history. Now, uh, we, we say that the modern world order is based on Westphalia, in which we're, every state was recognized to be sovereign. However, it soon became very evident that uh, we did not have sovereign equality. Not all states had the same sovereignty. So sovereignty was something, uh, not just a right, but also responsibility. And the only one who were capable of upholding this responsibility were than the Europeans, uh, Christians, and uh, the rest of the world uh, were not civilized. They were not Europeans, they were not Christians. And so for this reason, uh, they did not have the same sovereignty. This is again, just an objective reality that this is the system that was uh, formed. And uh, so uh, under this uh, system, there was uh, the rhetoric which would merge was, uh, yeah, this is the garden, which is the civilized uh, Europe. And then you have the rest of the world, which is the jungle. And the basic assumption would be once we, when we're in the garden, we have to respect the rule of law. But when we're in the jungle, we really have to go out and, uh, uh, and, and the rules no longer apply because this is the rule of the jungle. So we don't have to follow the rules anymore once we're out in the wider world. Now, you can say that after the Cold War, well, after the Second World War, we began to drop a lot of this rhetoric about the civilized versus the barbarian. But we now, uh, through ideology, reframed it as uh, liberal democracies versus authoritarian states. And this is why this rhetoric has been revived of the garden and the jungle. Uh, again, it's not that some far periphery, even at the... Uh, the advisor to main advisor to Tony Blair when he came up with his liberal internationalism called for liberal empire, where he effectively used the same metaphor. We are, we are the garden. We have to go out there to the jungle, and uh, you see the same rhetoric also from the EU leadership from Josep uh, uh, Borrell who made this argument uh, again, just like Kipling. If we are the garden, we have built a system uh, based on peace and law. But uh, outside of our walls, there's a jungle. And if we don't go into the jungle and tame them, then the jungle will uh, uh, grow and grow into the garden. So there is this, um, yeah, it's a, it's a rhetoric of uh, superiority in order to justify uh, sovereign inequality. So sovereignty for us, uh, but not for you. This is uh, the basic idea. Handy if you back genocide. Uh, around the world and uh, veto UN Security Council resolution, say, on, on Gaza, if you, if you actually uh, believe that, of course. Uh, the NATO nation propaganda media has been lauding uh, Navalny in uh, Russia, who's marched with Nazis, of course, and backed Russia's uh, uh, retaking of Crimea. How, uh, how do you think uh, the Navalny case should be covered by this media, and who, who benefited from his killing or his death uh, just before the Munich Security Conference, given that uh, they, they're clearly trying to build him up as some, I've heard him be compared to Nelson Mandela, of all people, uh, you know, on the BBC, CNN, and, and the propaganda media of uh, NATO nations. Yeah, well, this has become a, a trend, I guess, over the past few years. Of course, this isn't in the book as this happened more recently, but... Uh, um, 
but but as we see with uh, one Guaido from Venezuela or uh, or the case in Belarus, you know, there's a tendency to try to elect the leaders for other governments, much like what was done in Ukraine, by the way. Now with Navalny, uh, I think uh, what's missing there, I guess, from the media is the nuance, because uh, of course, if uh, if uh, if someone from political opposition dies in in prison, uh, that the people have a uh, you know legitimate uh, reasons to query, like why was he mistreated, for example, one why one should have transparency. But that being said, we can't pretend as if the West hasn't uh, been using this for everything it's worth. And also, uh, as you said, whitewashed him. I mean, I keep hearing references from people like Michael McFall that he was the main opposition leader in Russia, and I hear this over and over again. But this is just uh, objective reality is not correct. The main opposition is the Communist Party. Then you have many other political parties. He wasn't he wasn't a, an opposition leader in this sense. Uh, and I don't think uh, uh, you know there was any chance of him taking power in Russia. So this is this is a very false narrative. And also, I guess the way he's now portrayed as being this uh, yeah, freedom fighter again. This is the what what will happen to all this rhetoric of. Uh, you know, considering Muslims uh, in the Caucasus as being cockroaches, uh, I remember a lot from the Western media attempted to to clear his name, saying, "Well, this was when he was younger and you know less experienced." But when they went back to interview him, he confirmed my opinions have not changed. So <laughs> there's been a very strong effort to whitewash it, but it doesn't. Um, uh, again, it it seems very naive or deceptive to suggest this is not uh, p politically motivated. Professor Glenn Deason, I'll stop you there. More from the author of the Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Glenn Deason, editor at Russia in Global Affairs and author of The Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order. Professor Deason, we were just talking in part one about uh, Navalny and the absurd uh, comparisons being made in propaganda media in uh, NATO nations. Navalny, of course, um, before he started marching with the uh, Nazis in Russia, uh, was funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. And you explain in this book, uh, briefly and in passing, uh, the way the uh, US intelligence services act in terms of these NGOs to attempt uh, the destruction of democracy around the world. Can you just go into that uh, a little? Because the National Endowment for Democracy is uh, routinely considered a great uh, pro-democracy uh, organization in uh, NATO countries, as you know. Well, this is one of the contradictions of uh, liberal hegemony. So under a liberal hegemony, the assumption is that uh, uh, liberal ideals can only elevate in the international system if uh, it occurs under the leadership and hegemony of the United States. And uh, so towards this end, to ensure hegemony, uh, there's been, to a large extent, a corruption of civil society because we argue that a true free and open uh, uh, democracy, which uh, which have to be to belong to the garden, then you have to have a strong civil society supported by NGOs. However, no, it's not enough. They have to be international NGOs. And it turns out that a lot of these in NGOs are actually, they're not actually non-governmental. They are uh, completely financed by government and often staffed by uh, people uh, who are former part of uh, the intelligence community. 
Now, when it comes with national, to the Mount, uh, sorry, the National Endowment for Democracy it was actually established in 1980s, uh, 83, uh, and the, the opening speech, introduction speech, uh, was given by Ronald Reagan, and he was very clear that this was a way of doing things uh, in the open instead of hiding, because the CIA often got caught. It was quite embarrassing, and again, this is not really a big secret. You had the uh, the co-founder of the National Endowment for Democracy confirming that you know, what the CIA used to do is what they do now. We have had many uh, whistleblowers from the CIA who say that this is effectively a CIA operation. And it's, it's a great way of uh, interfering in uh, other societies because uh, once you put all your money or put your money for interference into an NGO, which is allegedly about democracy, you now have source credibility. It's uh, it's an institution working for good values. Whoever opposes it, you know, they're undermining democracy. So it has all the propaganda value you need. Also, it's it's selective by definition. They they only look at the uh, human rights and democracy issues in adversarial states. So suddenly, all great power politics is framed through the prism of uh, human rights. So good good values versus bad values the democratic West versus the authoritarian rest. And so this becomes an instrument of propaganda because there's no principles involved. Uh, well, look at the current instance. Uh, you know, no, nobody cared, uh, wanted him to report on Gonzalo Lira dying in a Ukrainian prison or on uh, Julian Assange. But uh, people like Navalny has to be, you know, whitewashed and become the new Mandela. So it's uh, it, it shows that this is a way of corrupting civil society rather than actually building it. And you use a lot of uh, WikiLeaks's work in the book in terms of footnotes because, of course, Julian Assange revealed so many secrets, regardless of the uh, case in uh, London. And we've had the UN Special Rapporteur talking about his torture by British authorities. Uh, is it to be expected that Washington um, and proxy Brussels and London and so on would all collaborate to try and assassinate uh, uh, the kind of people that appear in footnotes of the kinds of books you write. Uh, is that to be expected now, that uh, they will uh, organize assassinations, as uh, Julian Assange's defense team maintain? Well, it depends. Uh, it depends who it will be. But uh, of, of course, uh, the, the CIA have been revealed to have, uh, to have had plans to kill uh, Assange. So this is, uh, again, an objective reality. But uh, uh, the, the problem is everything becomes uh, politicized. Uh, uh, if you if you if you recognize that uh, that uh, like our side is uh, committing this kind of crimes, it's it can be accused of assisting the the adversary. Um, because it will take a, a related topic. I, if if you criticize, for example, sanctions against Russia that they don't work, which is reality, uh, then you reduce trust in sanctions. And if you reduce trust in sanctions, that means you're assisting the Russians. So we always have the narratives which have to trump uh, the facts. And I think this is yeah it goes back to the same problem. Well, I, the odd thing is that uh, even kind of U.S. allies like India which albeit does masses of trade since uh, uh, Putin decided to defend the people of uh, eastern Ukraine, is getting annoyed by the National Endowment for Democracy a bit themselves. You quote quite at length from Foreign Minister Subramanian Shashankar, uh, explaining why now NATO hates democracy, presumably with the use of these, um, maybe we shouldn't call them NGOs, maybe we should call them geos. 
Yeah, the N definitely <laughs> does not belong uh, into that acronym. But yeah, the, but this is a, this is a good example because often this is portrayed as being a struggle simply between the U.S. its allies on one side and its adversaries on the others. But as you see, and this is one of the feature of the new world order emerging, it's a multipolar system. Uh, so you have countries such as uh, uh, well, countries who are friendly to the U.S. as well, such as Turkey or India, as you mentioned, who would like to have. Uh, to act as an independent polar power, uh, which means they're not going to follow in the footsteps of the United States. So they, they're also uh, becoming more and more cautious now of these instruments of hegemony, uh, which are not just uh, you know economic, military, and uh, political, but it's also the manipulation of civil society. And this is what the Indians were commenting upon, or the foreign minister, when uh, when, when effectively called this uh, uh, manipulation and is uh, not even a civilizing mission in terms of uh, bringing hum human rights and democracy. It is a way of uh, manipulating policies and, and, uh, and, and essentially aligning uh, their policies with uh, the United States. And along with uh, all these geopolitical, geostrategic, military uh, changes, you see signs of U.S. collapse in... NATO nation culture uh, in this book. I mean, we've talked on this program about how Russian writers, composers, artists uh, have been banned in the wake of the um, uh, move to protect people in Ukraine by uh, Russia. And you quote, a lesson from ancient Rome was that civilizations much like stars shine the strongest. Is, uh, before they die, presumably, is what you mean. What sort of dangers, I mean, are they, I mean, this is 500 years we're talking about. So what sort of dangers and how short term are these dangers going to be? Are they going to, are Washington and EU proxies going to realize it's a case of nuclear weapons as their only, uh, only uh, option, given they are failing to sanction Russia, failing to prevent China from becoming a, a preeminent uh, economic superpower and so on? Yeah, well, just first in terms of the yeah, civilizations uh, shining the brightest. Uh, I mean, Russian writers, artists uh, being banned by NATO countries, of course, not by Russia. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, well, this is also because hegemons, they lose uh, priority. Uh, once there's no more uh, adversaries, there's no more priorities being made, and you see the excesses beginning to tear, tear away. But... Uh, um, but 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 uh, the, the conflict with uh, in, in in Ukraine obviously I think is also um, yeah, a, a good indication of how they fail to uh, to do to do proper priorities because the, the, the amount of the possibilities they had to maximize security was there all along and instead they always picked the the, the route to maximize power instead and I think there's been a a, a willful ignorance if you will of uh, how. What, what the strengths of Russia's are and what the weakness of themselves are. And their uh, reaction to populism, as they call it, Trump, Orban and others, of these liberal elites is to obviously try and tie them to the enemy. I, it's been Russia for a while. Presumably they'll all be tied to China uh, soon. Uh, is yes. it their version of, uh, I mean, we mentioned Gramsci a lot, and this book clearly uses words like hegemony in civil society a lot, an interregnum that we're in, that you, you posit. So uh, is that their way of uh, talking about how terrible the interregnum is, this populist uh, uh, situation where someone like Trump is gaining so much popularity and other populist figures who will no doubt gain in popularity as uh, economies decline in Western Europe? 
Yeah, and the, the interregnum I referred to was because, uh, well, this is the source of all our conflicts now. It's uh, the world order's shifting. So the Americans are trying to pull it back to unipolarity, while most of the non-NATO world is trying to pull it towards multipolarity. And it's in this uh, friction that all the rules are collapsing, which is why we're having the crisis we do. Uh, but populism is is a, it's become a, a key problem within the West, because not everyone is marching uh, in the same tact anymore. And this is also something I drew parallels to in the 19th century, because after a period of globalization, it's quite common that you have some winners of globalizations and some who have uh, lost uh, lost out. For example, in Europe, the the farmers, or in the U.S., the industrial, uh, the in, in sorry, the industry workers, and and in, in this instance, you create a huge divide between the elites and the people. And it's uh, this is why after globalization in the 19th century and now, you have the emergence of uh, certain populists who are essentially saying that these policies the elites are pushing, uh, which are globalist uh, by definition, are no longer in the interest of the people. And so populism can be a mechanism for 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 for, for addressing uh, the, the the shift from the elites, which doesn't necessarily represent the people to the same to the except same extent. Except there's one oh. difference from that over this 500 yeah. years since Westphalia, and I should say some British historians consider the birth of nationalism, nation states earlier. Uh, but just you know, because I am British, the difference is, isn't it? And you mentioned Zuckerberg and Facebook, is that the uh, tools they now have to censor, suppress information to surveil are so much greater than ever before. Could they not, as Zuckerberg has um, tried to get the United States to do, to increase private public uh, uh, use of technology to further the aims of the CIA, uh, to pick one agency, can they not do that and uh, dumb down in a truly Orwellian, uh, Aldous Huxley-style way and destroy the minds of everyone in Western Europe? Uh, this is a real problem. Uh, again, this is why the problems fa we face today are not that uh, uh, dissimilar from the problems after the First World War, because uh, you now have uh, the political class beginning to uh, go more hand in hand with uh, the main industries, which are now the, 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 the digital uh, tech giants. Now, Zuckerberg, of course, is a very interesting example because you know when when you had all these issues on the Russia Gate about disinformation and uh, and, uh, and propaganda, then of course you know he he came to the government and said, "Listen, we we are not your enemies. You you don't have to regulate us. We will work with you, because uh, disinformation is a problem coming from Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, you know nowhere else." So he he tends to identify. The, the, these key issues of misinformation as linked solely to the adversary of the United States. So you see corporate interest and uh, government uh, beginning to merge more and more. And once you have this, which effectively is by definition a fascist political economy, uh, you have very little power left for the people in this uh, relationship. Because once yeah, against corporations and government go hand in hand, uh, the people have very little to to stand up for. So I I would say there's a there's a good reason why uh, why people are so gung ho for uh, any war seemingly that comes their way. Professor Glenn Deason, thank you. Uh, my pleasure.
And that's it for the show. Our continued condolences to those surviving the killing in all NATO-backed wars. The new book, The Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order, is out now. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. Until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.